Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're happy to introduce you to Gary Layden, co-founder and GP of Layden Ventures, an early stage fund operating out of Dubai, and have invested in breakout companies like Coinbase, Superhuman, and Instacart, long before they occupied the front page of TechCrunch. And importantly, he's also the host of Taco Stars, the largest founder social community in the UAE, and is hands down one of the funniest guys we brought on the show. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Barry, welcome to UVC and thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Before like jumping deep into the topics that we want to, maybe I'd suggest that we just hear a bit about yourself. Who's Gary and what brought you to doing what you're doing now at Leiden Ventures? Cool, thank you. Well, to quote my favorite Jay-Z song, allow me to reintroduce myself. <laughs> Hi, dear listeners. My name is Gary Shankman, run a kind of multi-stage VC firm. It's funny enough because I am definitionally a European VC, meaning that I am European and I work in venture capital, but I don't think I would qualify by the EU government as a European venture capital firm. My partner and I, we are based out of the UAE. So we live between Dubai and Abu Dhabi and our Delaware domicile fund invests all over the world, though it ends up being primarily in the U.S., Just previously to this, so we launched this year, we're about 11 transactions in, probably most infamous for it, I don't know if it's famous, for bringing Techstars to the Middle East. So the very first Techstars program in our part of the world was the Dubai Accelerator, which we ran in Emirates Towers in partnership with local family offices and and the government. And so we did that in 2018-19, before then spent some time doing kind of government advisory work. There's a lot of interesting activity that's happening in this part of the world where the GCC, the Gulf governments, are investing heavily into co-working spaces, new styles of visa, and we're investing into transforming their economies to make it more attractive for knowledge work. And so that's been a fun adventure here. Previously to that was building content management and streaming products at Vice Media and other technology companies. So I, I gave up. It's like when you can't do teach. And so when you can't do teach, when you can't <laughs> teach invest, so it's like the absolute laziest track professionally to take. But it's been a super fun journey. You know, I appreciate you guys bringing me on board. Probably the only other thing that I will shill on your show is that we kind of post running this accelerator in Dubai now run the largest happy hour for entrepreneurs, definitely in the UAE. There's not a whole lot of competitors, by the way, uh, around. So I'm pretty sure it's the largest in the GCC. And so it's called Taco Stars because I was trolling my good friends at Techstars. But we're now, you know, over 300 founders, entrepreneurs from Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Riyadh. Because of kind of the size and the events that we're able to host, we'll do accelerator style services for members. So, hey, you know, I'm a founder. I have like a company in Cayman. I just raised some money. I can't figure out how to open a bank account. I didn't go through a top tier program like the Techstars or the 500s or a Stuart Bootcamp. You know, great. Can we hook up, you know, someone that's building really 
medical software with their first, you know, hundred thousand dollars of AWS credits or you know a couple of hundred thousand dirhams of Stripe credits. And because we're building community, those companies, you know, obviously are really happy to help. And so, you know, that's kind of like consistent work that we're doing, and it's also fun because we primarily invest in kind of other markets. Uh, it's a way for us to stay connected to the community. You actually stole my next question. I was going to say, you spoke about tech stars. Now talk about the other stars. <laughs> That's very cool. <laughs> Over to you, Andreas. Let's talk about the MENA region and the ecosystem as such. You're operating out of Dubai. Is that the perfect place to be if you want to approach the MENA region? And how have you gone about it? Great question. I mean, I think it also depends for whom. We found that we were able to raise capital and we have a niche to invest into the companies that we'd like to sitting here. This is an incredible place for expatriates, especially from Europe and the U.S., to come with their families. The quality of life is, is just incredible. And the government, in many ways, like in the UAE specifically, just makes it all too easy. Between like all the schools having apps of where your kids are at and kind of the safety aspect of it and the municipal services you know, governments will have like visas and sponsorship and whether it's in Europe or anywhere in the world, there's all of these incentives. But what yeah. actually drives tech communities and what drives places, it's municipal services. You know, it's great. Can people get around? Do they get good internet? Is it easy to get in and out? Uh, do people feel like they're able to be functional members of a society when they get on the ground? And cities that are functionally welcoming that way, they will grow as a result, you know, despite having other issues that might be around their governance. Or if they go kind of the route of Portugal, they end up kind of doubling down. We're super welcoming. It's very easy to be here. And we have all of these incentives. Contrasting, you know, your experience of being in the European ecosystem and the MENA region's ecosystem, what rules in the playbook need to be changed? The biggest change is that, you know, U.S. venture capital is like, cool, one big sexy market. And then people say, oh, well, Europe, it's not actually one market. It's all of these countries and people speak different languages and you have all of these things you have to think about. You know, Middle East is that, but cranked up to 11. <laughs> and what I mean by that is we have the Gulf states, which are similar in terms of earnings. But then you have Egypt, which is significantly larger population-wise, but obviously materially, you know, orders of magnitude lower GDP, significantly lower penetration of advanced banking services. We live in this modern economy, and... It's not the populations that matter, right? You always see these top-down quantifications, but the real questions are, if you're building something that's complex or that requires high income, it's not the number of people that live in a city. It's how many people live in a city and they have a $1,000 phone and they have a credit card that is attached to the payment system of that phone, be it Apple Pay or Samsung or Google. It doesn't matter, but those are going to be the spenders. They're going to be participating in the modern economy. It's not going to be super old people. It's not going to be incredibly young people that still you know, live with their parent. It's going to be the kind of that meat. And so that is really the market. It's much smaller than people think, you know, in the UAE, that's, you know, probably a couple of million people. In Egypt, it's obviously significantly bigger, but you have the spending. You know, a lot of companies that end up doing business in this part of the world, it's not like a sexy, hey, it's a Delaware or a UK mm -hmm. or, you know, a German yeah. company and you can run basically your staffing and your payments all through it. You end up with a holding company that is usually, you know, Cayman or BBI or one of the free zones that we have 
right, in this part of the world where you have UK common law enclaves within the local government. So you have a holding company where you take investor capital, where you issue options, where you issue warrants, where you actually run your cap table. And then as a subsidiary, you'll have an operating company in the country where you're trying to do business. And those subsidiaries are the ones that provide employment. They pay your rents. They pay your utilities. They pay tax on sales if there's VAT involved. You know, those are kind of your operating entities. And they tend to be separate because those operating entities tend to have very specific things that they can do in terms of capitalization, in terms of issuing financial instruments. And so you want to preserve that in kind of UK or US or EU law and then deal with any local legislation at a subsidiary level. Sorry, we got a little, I I apologize (laughs) to the listeners. We, We got a little deep on this, but this is something that, you know, if you're 23 years old and you're building your first company, it's not like you go on a portal in Estonia, press a button and you got a company. You have to really think about this stuff up front. And we have, you know, now a community of attorneys and platforms that help entrepreneurs with this. But this is all really, really new for this part of the world. We're talking only a couple of years where, you know, we really have figured out what are the best jurisdictions from a holding company perspective to work with. How about from the VC perspective, sitting here in Europe, looking at the MENA region and saying, ah, we're starting to see some interesting startups here. We're a generalist firm. If we should go to the MENA region, what sectors should we be looking for? What are the hottest areas there? Great question. You have to look at kind of what sectors really are growing in this part of the world. You know, grocery, logistics, all the things around retail, we've been incredible at growing. This has been one of the more advanced markets in the world for dark kitchens, just because food delivery is, is so popular and everyone has you know payments really figured out. Consumer fintech, though, that's relatively new. We have the fucking shittiest banks in the world that <laughs> deliver the shittiest fucking services. And funny enough, the governments in this part of the world are actively financing their own holding companies to disrupt the retail-owned banks in this part of the world because entrepreneurial communities are complaining so much that the governments are now saying, we'll just build a bank to service the knowledge economy because it's cheaper than trying to force these ancient organizations to retool their portals that still require Internet Explorer to log in. Like, I can't describe to you how you know, silly and antiquated a lot of this stuff is. And so there's a path to really building interesting fintech, right? Revenue-based finance, really new here. BNPL became huge overnight. And so, yeah, we went from like zero to a dozen companies very quickly. But these kind of fintech trends, they tend to migrate very quickly. And then other trends take a little bit of time to figure out. But yeah, great companies happen here, you know, whether it's insurance or whether it's logistics or whether it's like pure technology. Unfortunately, a lot of the times what happens is that People will build great global market companies and they will move to the UK or they'll move to the US because they can, you know, whether get funding or talent or the kind of operational support that some of the capital providers in the US and Europe are more equipped to deliver, they'll go and take advantage of that. And you can't blame them. You know, you want them to be successful. Would you say that there's a strong regional perspective and ambition rather than a global? Or is it just the same as you'd see in Europe and the US? There's always a global ambition, but there is so much to do locally, right? Building for the Arabic-speaking world, there is just so much open space in terms of delivering services that you know, might have been done in another country, and it's just way too complicated to come and try to attempt this in, in the Middle East. You know, Again, complex cross-border payments, man, that's a lot of central banks <laughs> that you need to make happy. 
even like ride hail or any kind of logistics, you know, right? You're creating companies, you're employing people on the ground, you're doing training, you know, the stuff isn't in English, you know, these are more complex concepts operationally to execute than they are in the US or Europe. And so it takes longer, it takes more capital to execute on the ride hail. Now, there's a good reason that Uber ended up acquiring Kareem, that Amazon acquired Souk. We'll see more of this because these companies get in there and they realize what kind of spaghetti, you know, is under the hood of these companies in terms of, you know, how they're set up operationally because they're dealing with complex multi-market issues. And so it becomes cheaper for them to acquire than to attempt to brute force it like they would in a large market. We had a question from our community, from Mustafa Gado. He asked us what the region lacks to prosper as a startup ecosystem and to breed more unicorns. And I'm sure you're going to say some of the things you've just said, but, you know, maybe list it completely bluntly for everyone to understand that this is what you're lacking. Time. I frequently say this. So if you've ever heard me on stage on another podcast, the two that I've ever done, you'll say, look, entrepreneurship is a brain disease. There is no way that a country can make more entrepreneurs. It's just a statistical anomaly. For every hundred people, there'll be a couple of crazies that see a broken world that will put themselves through this intense pain, physical and psychological, of trying to build a business and inspire people and create an organization from scratch. And so it's just a function of population and time. I remember the very first Twitter meetup in Dubai. It was in 2008. There was like 25 or maybe 30 of us in this crappy bar. You know, in 2008, you know, for those of you who are a little bit younger, there was the App Store was just announced. There was Tweety wasn't acquired by Twitter yet. So there was no Twitter on the iPhone. If you were using Twitter on the iPhone, you were using it through text messaging. To go from, hey, there is a couple of dozen people in a country that know what Twitter is you know, just a little over a decade ago to having a couple of unicorn exits to having now a good dozen venture capital firms. That's a lot. But also, you know, what's a dozen venture capital firms? There's a dozen venture capital firms probably, you know, just in a block, you know, in, in Union Square in New York, right? And so it's time and it's for policies to be created, for governments to start deploying sovereign capital to support these ecosystems. And it's for people to get educated, right? It's a process of, you know, Can we get the bodies required to fulfill these roles? You know, you don't need to make a hundred Elon Musk's. You need to have the one guy that will employ a hundred thousand people. And how, as countries, can we make sure that, great, we have QA engineers, we have machine learning engineers, we have user interface designers, we have illustrators. I mean, to go and build a company now, you, know, you need a fair amount of specializations. You know, even kind of back in our, you know, vice days, half a decade plus, there will be people in their mid-20s that wake up in the morning and they go and they open up Facebook Ad Manager and they live in that piece of software all day. We have the specializations in tech that requires a lot of skill sets to be trained up that are just individual contributors. And that's fine. You know, I don't think you need extra startups. You just need kind of statistics and time to catch up. I'm bullish on the world normalizing to some degree and more people being part of the knowledge economy, but you're not going to escape time, you know, physics, and you're not going to escape statistics, right? You need X amounts of young people enrolled in creative industries in university. And then 10 years later, you will see the second order effects of entrepreneurship, of a dynamic labor market. There's no magic to it. 
I think it's no more than two days ago that I spoke to an emerging manager who said, nah, now we're raising 170 million fund. It's their second fund. And we uh, have a rope show planned starting in Dubai. <laughs> what are the big no-nos and <laughs> the good ideas to do? And I definitely know that many people have felt burned when they started exploring the MENA region as a source of wealth for their fund. There's kind of this perception that there is just capital swimming here and you yeah. can come in <laughs> and you with your bucket and you scoop the cash and you just put it into your treasury and you're able to deploy it almost instantly. But there's a few things that people must kind of understand. And it's kind of very similar concepts as when, you know, we'll advise founders and we say, hey, make sure that there is an investor and an investor opportunity fit in terms of what you're trying to do. If you're going to Abu Dhabi and you're talking to Abu Dhabi Investment Authority or Mubadala and you're not there for a $100 million check in your fourth fund and you don't have an incredible track record with some great institutional LPs and you're raising north of a billion dollars, the sovereign funds are not going to be interested in you. That's not their job. They are moving material amounts of capital. They're politically exposed entities and it's not their, you know, they might have some sort of an emerging manager scout program, but the scout program involves giving you a call and saying, oh, on fund three, if you break through half a billion dollars AUM, you know, let us know and we'll talk about it during fund four. Look, if you have someone from Andreessen or Sequoia and they're breaking away and they're building something really cool, great. There's that relationship already exists at the manager level. That, that happens. But you need to assume that you're building you know, that pathway from scratch every time. It's not like these guys you know, that are managing multiple billion dollar portfolios are in the business of writing relatively small checks. I'm too small for this stuff, right? We always want to set expectations with friends that are GPs that are traveling here around the kind of capital that they can raise. The big sovereign funds, you know, and not only in the Middle East, they like sexy logos and they will, you know, shoot for worse terms with oversubscribed tier one funds because they will be able to provide not only normalized returns, but also opportunities to deploy significantly more capital on a risk-adjusted basis. These organizations aren't that big to begin with to go and manage you know, hundreds of, of funds, right? That's one thing. You know, Make sure that the check size versus the kind of organization that you're approaching is appropriate. The other is some of these entities have active fund-of-fund programs that are targeted to specific development goals. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, you can go and have a conversation with Jada Fund of Funds, with Saudi Venture Company in Riyadh, and they write very significant checks. They're wonderful LPs to work with, but their target is the development of the Saudi economy. That is what they seek. You are supposed to report on kind of your impact on the labor market. And so if you're not planning to do a regional fund, there's really no one to talk to. Yeah. It's not their mandate. You know, same in the UAE. There are pools of capital that are available to you to deploy into the local ecosystem. And, you know, you can say, oh, yes, we'll make a pocket for it. But frankly, it just no one will take you seriously because there are managers here that are on their second, third funds that already have a community that deliver events. It's not like no one has heard of venture capital here. People are professional. <laughs> so that's like the professional, sovereign and institutional side of the world. But there's also a bunch of you know wealthy people here. There's high net worth individuals yeah. that have moved here with their families. There are family-owned conglomerates, whether they're in construction or logistics or ports or whatever it is that have significant capital to deploy. And those are the family offices that people get really excited about. And my advice is really simple. You can absolutely, I promise you, 
raise a healthy check from this kind of group of investors if you're here for two years once a month a week at a time (laughs) (laughs) right there's so many people that come through town that are consistently fundraising people have scar tissue and so if you're there for jitex and world government summit and formula one with the rest of the world (laughs) you know going uh, to the events and the restaurants and you do some sort of a keynote Great. You're one of a thousand people a week that are at that level because Dubai in many ways is like Vegas or Miami. We have large scale events happening consistently from October going through April. And so, you know, if you want to break out from that, you need to do very traditional relationship buildings because in many ways, when you're outside of that institutional world, it's not other people's money. It's, hey, it's me and my brother's inheritance from my dad. And people are trusting after you've spent time building that relationship, but you need to show that value up front. And I tell many managers, look, it's worthwhile. I recommend it if you want to spend time, you know, in this part of the world, but there's way easier ways to fundraise. (laughs) You know, if you are a European VC, you know, there are institutional pockets. There are EU-focused, you know, government support pockets of capital. Do a parallel structure with the UK. You know, they have tax rebates for this stuff. There are way more efficient ways to raise capital than, you know, getting on flights and doing meetings and doing this 18-plus month sales cycle with family offices that have quite a bit of competition for their time. When I spoke to a uh, emerging manager just the other day who had paid 10K to an organization that promises three minutes on a pitch stage every month to family offices in the MENA region, you're shaking your head violently here, but do <laughs> put words on to that. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot. I mean, UAE and I think the emerging world, I don't think this is endemic to the Middle East has this weird binary result of having incredible people that choose to move and build here and then all the garbage of the world. And so there are people to this date that will host events and say, hey, go you know, pay to pitch. We'll, you'll get introduced and you'll have like a local partner, but you don't need a local partner. You can incorporate as a foreigner in this part of the world for years now. You know, You don't need that kind of access. Second of all, most of these organizations you can reach them on LinkedIn. We all know each other. We are not a large ecosystem. There is a couple hundred startups. There is like a dozen plus VCs. There's a few fund of funds. You know, if you're actively trying to fundraise in this part of the world, come to a demo day, you know, come to a happy hour with entrepreneurs. You'll meet everyone you need to. And they'll say, hey, go talk to Gary or go talk to Danny Becco or go talk to, there's a couple of us that have been fortunate enough to just be in the market for a decade. It's not that we're all super connected. It's just, it's small enough that we all know each other. And so we can generally point you in the right direction. We do believe in abundance. You know, it's not like they're going to run out of petroleum, you know, in this part of the world in our lifetimes, you know, at least in our professional lifetimes. So it's not like we're stingy with LPs. And so we're more than happy to make introductions if there's an opportunity and it makes sense, you know, for people that we work with. Broadly speaking, I think all the agents are criminals, you know, the pay to pitch, that will be your local partners, will make introductions, all of these people. I want you to know that if someone is charging you money to get introduced to high network people, definitely in Dubai, these people are pariahs. And when they introduce an opportunity to someone that matters, you're automatically blacklisted as an <laughs> idiot who trusted these people. There is like no worse signal for me if like someone is getting pitched by an organization that rips people off, right? It's like, you've got had, first of all, so I'm sorry. 
And second of all, I can't believe you didn't just come to like a demo day. Like it's here. It's so easy to research. <laughs> Thanks a million for clarifying that. I was about to say that it sounds like they should show up to uh, the Taco Stars, but I also know that the rule is that if you talk shop there, then you'll be kicked for life. <laughs> You're kicked out for life from the chat groups because we want to keep the chat groups clean because everyone is always fundraising. But, you know, you come to an event and, you know, I'm a few margaritas deep. I'm going to go and just yell like, that guy has money, pointing in the screen so you guys might might, might get it. But this stuff happens. And so, yeah, we do recommend people come. But there is a community, both of investors and founders in this part of the world. We welcome other folks coming and fundraising and finding success here. But people should be aware of the process involved and kind of the pitfalls of that. We've been talking a lot about the MENA region, super cool, but I'd actually like to focus a bit more now on latent ventures specifically. Sure. If we visit your website, we see that you're a rolling fund and then you're setting up SPVs to invest in startups and scout funds. And I have the feeling that a couple of our more junior emerging managers might get lost. <laughs> so could you please just put some words into that and give us a bit more context on what, what you guys are doing and maybe also why? Why did you set it up like that? Sure. So there's never magic to any of this. You know, post wrapping up Techstars, the next thing that I wanted to do was partner up with you know, a good friend and co-investor and collaborator and former colleague of mine, Hamdi. And so, you know, when Mohammed and I, we decided, right, let's go and build this from scratch. What do we actually want in an organization? Well, A, we want to think about being multi-product from day one. Traditionally, VC funds is, I'm going to raise my first one. I'm going to try to get to first close. Then I might do an opportunities fund. Then sequentially, I'll raise the next fund. But if we're honest with ourselves, this is a relic from the 80s where people didn't have software to manage fund administration and filing. <laughs> That's, this is the reason why we use all of this stuff today. It's really a relic. If you're not really restricted by this, how would you go and start investing? Well, you'd want to be able to continuously close and deploy capital. You know, The moment that rolling fund was announced, I'm like, great. This is basically a registered investment advisor equivalent holding company, the kind of stuff that Andreessen and Tribe and now Sequoia is doing, but under the SEC BC exemption. Great. Let's start doing that right away. Getting your first million dollars in, taking a year to do that, and deploying a bunch of $50,000 checks, that is a way better path to building a fund and reputation than spending a year trying to get to a first close of half a million bucks for your first microfund. Transact, and then you'll be able to command higher LP stakes, you know, because you would have had the track record, but you also have the rails. You know, actually going through and building the infrastructure that you need to effectively transact, you know, that's not trivial. And you need to get kind of good at it and, and start and start deploying, even if you've been at a firm before. There's a difference when you're fiduciary for the first time. And it's, you know, for Americans, like, you know, it's my social security number on <laughs> all the bank accounts. Like, it's, it's a little bit yeah. different yeah. Uh, that way. So big fans of that. What also inevitably happens is you'll have opportunities that are too big for the amount of money that you're starting to manage. And so that's when you start doing the SPVs. So I think the way that the evolution of the more modern fund managers that, that we're seeing, we're, you're going to start with a continuously open, whether it's rolling or just an open fund structure. You're going to start doing deal by deals for like random cool secondaries or SPVs that other VCs share with you. 
And then once you have you know, a couple of dozen transactions under your belt doing this, you can then either raise a freestanding evergreen vehicle or a more traditional fund, but that path is just much better. And you don't need to be an exited billionaire and you don't need to come from a financial background to do it. If you're a great operator, you can raise a little bit of money and start deploying today build a track record and be so much further ahead than if you would have tried to do even a modest first close. So that's the reason that we like these structures. You know, we don't like the concept of people like, oh, when are you doing your next close? Or when are you opening your next fund? Like, no, we're consistently deploying. And I don't think, I like that the rolling fund forces you to think of LPs as subscribers because I need to retain them. So, hey, I don't want them to unsubscribe the next quarter. I think about churn. I think about cohort expansion. I think about you know SaaS metrics when I think about my investors. And great, we want to engage them. We want to send great update letters. We want to have this community of RLPs that we're constantly growing with. And over time, we think that builds a more durable organization. So yeah, we're, I'm like nine and a half months into it. That's the strategy that we've taken and it allowed us to start right away. Like we didn't have to go and think about closings. We just had a few folks that wanted to back us from day one. And then it was very easy to get each additional check afterward. This is the issue of European emerging managers and angel list and rolling funds. It's a very American ecosystem. You know, they might be able to get the closest backers into the angel list system because they really want to do the deal. But how do you recruit for angel list from people outside of the AngelList ecosystem? Yeah, great question. Most people interact with AngelList with kind of the syndicates and the job boards. They have like a $7 billion fund administration <laughs> business. You know, yeah, they're they're yeah. very, very good at this job. But there are alternatives. And A, I think AngelList will eventually come to, I mean, there's already CoinList, right? But AngelList will come, I think, with a great regulated product in Europe eventually, when it makes sense. I think the big alternative for European managers is Boban, which does it with UK and Cayman companies. Now, they don't really do rolling structures just yet, but they do really long open periods, right? So if you want to keep a fund open for two years during a two-year investment period, you could theoretically do that. Now, some of your investors might not like that, but that is ultimately a negotiation that you should have with them. And I think that if you have you know, early backers that believe in you as a manager, for you to be able to accept an institutional or a potentially larger OP a little bit later in the fund's life, they should be able to do that. You know, that's why, just like we tell founders, <laughs> consistent LP communication is like the number one way to assure that people continue investing with you. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting what you said a while ago, Gary, about the rolling fund structure making you think in SaaS terms, right? And I'd love to have your take on that because I see you very much as, you know, very active on the community building side, even with the Taco Stars and so on. When you have that mindset towards your LPs, what is true in terms of LP relations that maybe wasn't in the traditional structure, right? Because things are quite different and those touch points are more regular. I'd love to hear you expand a bit more on that. Great question. We have not raised from institutions or corporations yet. All of our LPs are entrepreneurs or family offices yeah. or just high net worth individuals. So it's easier for us because at the end of the day, it's a very personal versus a corporate decision to transact with us. In the U.S., I think you already have LPs that are pretty comfortable with this model. But here, a lot of the institutional and professional capital allocators, they need to have normalized uh, metrics. Hmm. And so, great, you know, what is your MOIC? What is your TVPI? You know, how much are you managing? 
And I'm like, well, I'm not actually planning to close it. I think about, you know, velocity and volume of capital. So I like to do three to five deals a quarter. We're starting with $100,000 transactions. We want to get to a minimum check of 250 to 500 over a 24-month period since launch. We're halfway there. Normalized for your 10 plus two traditional fund, we want to feel like a $75 million fund in its first year of operations every year in terms of how we deploy. When you don't have a lot of funds reporting because it's a year and a half old structure, it's very difficult for allocators that have to do board reports with normalized metrics to force that decision. And that is the burden that we have to bear. You know, we yeah. not only have to convince people that we're decent investors. We have to explain what the model is and be proponents of this way of doing stuff. That's one of the, I think, issues with this. The other is there are very, very hard questions that LPs can ask that we don't have good answers for. Traditional funds have capital reserves. Rolling funds by nature do not have this concept. So we've had rolling funds that have traditional opportunities vehicles that are sidecar to them. We've had traditional funds that have rolling funds as opportunity funds. We've had rolling funds that then offer pro rata to LPs when there is an opportunity then and the rolling fund reinvests itself. That's what we do. We probably will be moving away from that model next year. But there are really good questions. How do you manage reserves? How do you do proper normalized reporting? So when you log into AngelList, it's cool because you'll get like your dashboard and exactly your metrics. So I can do for an individual LP. But as a fund, I have quarter on quarter different capital that I'm able to call from different vintages. So my vintages aren't annual. My vintages are LPs. A vintage for someone that has joined us first quarter of this year is going to feel very different than a vintage of someone that has subscribed to us in the second quarter of this year because they might have four versus six versus eight quarter long subscriptions. And this is wildly different from how traditional venture capital firms report on performance and how they discuss the size of the organizations that they're building. I think it's for the better, but we're in relatively uncharted territories, meaning that entrepreneurs get it, family offices get it. They love the flexibility. They like to scale up or scale down their commitments. They like the ability to say, hey, we don't like your direction. We, you know, we're no longer interested in continuing to deploy capital. So people like it, but organizations don't quite have the right interlink yeah. to yeah. easily transact. As you increase you know, the LP base, sooner or later, you have to go there, right? <laughs> What's your thought process on that foot? The industry has been slowly trending over this, but it's just, it's complex and expensive to do the scaling right. So the path is once you get to north of $100 million in net asset value, not AUM, NAV. So if you're doing pretty well as like a 30 plus million dollar fund year over year, if you want to continue working under U.S. regulations, you need to change your designation from an exempt fund to a registered investment advisor. And that has a number of challenges because you need to have people take the Series 65 exam. You need to have external compliance. And that has costs. But also it has a number of advantages because you can now have complex secondaries, multi-layered SPIVs, you can buy into LP positions, you can do all of these complex things. So what we see happening in our plans is we're going to have something that what the top funds have been doing is moving into some sort of an evergreen holding company that looks much closer to a hedge fund than it does a traditional venture capital firm. So there's going to be permanent capital available. And that permanent capital will deploy as an LP into the rolling fund, yeah. which will yeah. do primary share investments. 
that hedge fund will be able to take token positions, which are non-qualified investments under the SEC right now. So you're only able to do about 20% of your AUM into blockchain stuff. It's token exposure. So we want to be able to be more aggressive there. And also, there are great opportunities when family offices or funds need to unwind and move their positions for late-stage kind of opportunistic secondaries work. And if you are, again, building it from scratch, you can say, oh, we only do primary. No, who cares? Your job is to optimize returns for your investors. And if you have an opportunity to enter the cap table of a great company at a cost that makes sense, eventually in a liquidity event, then you should do it. And you shouldn't be stopped by the fact that, oh, my fund structure doesn't allow me to buy out a in-the-money fund position without LPAC consent. Like, it's just a stupid, again, 80s way of transacting that hasn't caught up to how the capital markets work today. The top performing funds in the world today, they've all gotten through this, right? They're already in Cayman, so they don't have to do with the IRA stuff, or they're full registered investment advisors. They have in-house lawyer and compliance team. Now, that's how those guys perform. And so we've had this democratization of these tools for emerging managers. Yeah, you have to learn how this stuff works. But it's well worth your while because it allows you to offer the similar product to the investment community as the big boys do. Yeah, very cool. uh, looking at the emerging manager ecosystem and what's been happening over the last years, what excites you the most? I don't know. That's a, I mean, I, I just think we're in a very fun place, I think, as an industry. I think venture capital is changing for the better. You know, we've had these major liquidity events with companies where this concept of operator angels, before it was scout funds, right? Now we have operator angels. You know, now we have better tools for founders to fundraise. We have better tools for emerging managers. For better or worse, stablecoin management is going to make wiring all around the world significantly easier. And we're already seeing it, right? You know, we take subscriptions over crypto. You know, we can go and transact with stablecoins if we need to. And so there is a whole lot of piping that's being changed in the venture capital industry, which is boring to anyone but GPs of funds. But it's incredibly exciting for us because it allows us to be quicker on our feet. I mean, if you think about 10 years ago, you needed $600,000, you know, in cash up front just to like pay for half of the law stuff. Now you can be up and running in under $50,000 a year. I mean, and that's prorated. Like this is dramatic change in the economics. You know, what we're seeing now for emerging managers, what AWS did for startups, Right. You know, now you're not buying racks. You know, now you're not going to a coolie, you know, that's charging you hundreds of thousands of dollars for your documents. They're an incredible firm, but we've all agreed that there's a standard way of doing this. Great. And now we have these clouds for us to transact to. And that is incredible. I couldn't agree more. Gary, we are up on the end of this, so we need to shift to the uh, quickfire round. Are you ready for it? No, but I, I don't think I have much of a choice. <laughs> no, no way you don't. First question, what do you believe to be true about the MENA region that most people wouldn't agree with? Oh, we have extraordinarily deep technical talent here. Because we don't have a ton of super deep tech companies coming out from here. You know, I think people judge the region incorrectly. I think we have incredible talent and it's up to us to keep the most talented people here. We have youth, right? And so there's an opportunity to do some incredible knowledge work building over the next decade. So I would invite people to really pay attention to what's happening in the larger populous countries and what the governments are doing to educate kids. We won't see it in the next couple of years, 
But if we look over a span of a decade, this is going to be a major shift, kind of the kind of companies that are going to get built. What is the most counterintuitive thing you have learned since you started Lightning? No, nothing. There is nothing counterintuitive. There is no magic to the venture capital profession. We are a financial services industry company. And so you talk to clients and you don't screw it up. Like, like It's actually a very simple business. That's quite intuitive. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Final question. What can we expect in the future from Gary and Leiden Ventures? You know, hopefully we don't screw it up and we grow. We hope to do more interesting projects. So we don't do like press releases or panels and we don't blog, but we'll do small micro funds with no fees and no carry for founders to cross invest into each other's companies. We're doing this for studio founders right now, which is really fun. We're doing this NFT project for the Taco Stars community, which is going to be Pope token based where we're going to be able to materially grow the amount of people that we can interact with and impact through that. And so, yeah, we like to do kind of fun stuff. You know, we're building a company. We don't look at ourselves as a fund. We look at ourselves as a startup and we build financial products. And those financial products can look like very boring funds, but they can look like other things as well. I would not be surprised if at a point in time you go and see our kind of parent company, which is Team Laden website, and you're like, oh, cool. So they have a VC and they have like an entrepreneurial support program and they're doing some cool things in the arts. We'll never blog, but you'll be able to, you know, hopefully interact with us. And I invite people to come to Dubai and, you know, mid-month grab a taco with us. Hopefully we'll be seeing you soon at a Taco Star event. Yeah, that'll be very, very fun. Uh, Gary, thank you for joining us. That was fun. We actually had a topic that we didn't discuss that I wanted to. So I'm just giving you a heads up. We will invite you for some kind of Q&A session or whatever because because you guys did a comparison of fund admin tools and that's super interesting for our listener base. So I just wanted to bring that up. But anyway, thank you. It was good fun and looking forward to keeping in touch with you. Yeah, this was awesome. And uh, I apologize to all your listeners. Um, I've drank two cups of coffee while we've been doing this interview. <laughs> so if I speak too quickly, uh, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.